0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I am loving my new e-bike. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I love my electric board. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our
1: Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Hennepin, a Saison-style farmhouse ale from the Omigang Brewing Company. This is not the first one we drank. Didn't we drink one of those like a
1: couple years ago?
0: Uh, Maybe last year, maybe two years ago. Uh, it was... Um, we actually were going to drink three Philosophers, but then I dropped that pack oh and spilled God. the glass all over the ground. Uh, but this is not that. This Hennepin uh, is... Uh, I am the one that's a little nervous, because this is way yellower than I usually enjoy. It smells
1: just the tiniest bit...
0: hoppy... I think? It doesn't have a strong smell. What are we doing today, Mr. Ralph?
1: Why are people so influenced by false information, even when they know better? We are joined by researcher Nikita Antonia Salovich to discuss her recent work on evaluative mindsets and how we can apply ongoing work to how we handle information in the classroom. Later, we discuss culturally responsive science teaching and how teachers can better cultivate sociopolitical consciousness with students. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read evaluative mindsets can protect against the influence of false
0: information. We are lucky to have one of the authors of this paper in our studio with us right now.
1: Uh, Yeah. So this was written by Nikita A. Salovich, Anya M. Kirsch, and David N. Rapp. Did I say their, their names correctly?
2: You got it. They'd be very proud.
1: And this was published in Cognition in 2022. And so we are joined by lead author Nikita Antonia Salovich. She is a PhD candidate in cognitive psychology at Northwestern University. She studies why people are influenced by false information when they know better and why does it still influence their decisions. Thank you for joining us. Welcome.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So this paper and several others that you've written recently are focused on this idea of misinformation and in particular that phrase evaluative mindsets. It sounds like there's a lot in that. So can you tell us a little bit about evaluative mindsets?
2: Yeah, for sure. So the idea of being evaluative, at least how we are using it in this paper and others, is this idea in which people approach information in a way where they're prioritizing, considering accuracy or the validity of information. So instead of just reading information for, for example, entertainment or interest or making maybe these non-evaluative judgments in terms of um, how we're processing this information, instead we're explicitly considering and deliberately considering whether that information is true or false. And so this idea of an evaluative mindset is you are in this overall, I don't know, um, sphere, frame of mind where you are being critical of the information that is provided to you versus focusing on other non-evaluative factors.
0: I really very much enjoyed the um, background literature review portion of this paper as a framework to understand more of the Patterns of misinformation and their effect on individuals. And one of the things early, presenting false information may override correct information when when retrieved in the future. And that, uh, as a practicing teacher in a classroom, that right there consap, uh, cons- encapsulated that fear of accidentally teaching something wrong the first time because it makes the misconception sticky because it was the first time it was presented. And then later when the kids are like, hey, this is how it works. And I'm like, no, no, I did that backwards. And now it's going to be backwards in your head forever. And and so that, you know, it was really, um, that's what's happening in the classroom when I just accidentally misrepresent something. When we are exposed to inaccuracies in a broad format, that means the opportunity for that to happen is something we're encountering all of the time in our lives.
2: Right, all the time. And something that we find consistently in our work is that having accurate prior knowledge doesn't actually protect you from being influenced by false information in very obvious ways even if you know that Saturn is not the largest planet in the solar system and that it's Jupiter just being exposed to that idea once can lead you to reproduce it on a later general knowledge test right that's what we find here but then also you can show up in other types of assessments as well so I think that your concern is real right like incorrect work examples are something that teachers often use in classrooms as a method to actually, you know, say what you don't want to do, but it becomes an issue when that's the first thing that students learn. There's this idea that we don't reflect necessarily in this paper, but is a very related concept, which is called the continued influence effect. And it really goes back to this idea, the first thing that people learn, it is really sticky. And it's really hard to correct what you had been saying about, oh, I accidentally taught you something wrong. It's worse, right, for these sort of like reliance consequences. If you're like, that's wrong, just ignore that, but don't provide the alternative. But it turns out to be actually quite effective if you're saying, this is wrong, this is why, and instead, this is how we're doing it. Um, so there is hope in terms of correcting these sorts of inaccuracies, but you could, I definitely feel the sentiment of the first thing that people learn can be sticky. It's tricky when it's wrong. And it does go back to this incorrectly worked examples that folks didn't see, but I saw Michael waving his hands about just like a minute ago when I was talking about them.
1: (laughs) I was getting excited. About your comments about using negative examples, because that was the primary classroom application that I was thinking about when I read this paper. Like, we, I make mistakes sometimes, but there are also some deliberate choices that we can make differently in the classroom that recognize the uh, persistent harms that misinformation can cause and I think one of them is that moment where like a student is interested in a topic that's current events related. I taught biology when I was in, in the k-12 sector and so they're like, hey this current event came out and they just took the first picture of of a DNA molecule right That's cool that we just finally got a photo of it. I'm like, well, I don't know And I was like I don't know I don't think that's the first picture. I don't think I can actually nail down when the first picture was and I want to answer that question in this moment. But I know that I don't know. And so that's a spot where nobody else is competing with me. So I don't have to be first to market. And so the difference between saying, here's what I think it is. Let me get back to you tomorrow about whether that is correct, is a very different decision than saying, I don't know what it is. Let me get back to you tomorrow with an answer. And so those kinds of decisions, I think a teacher can make very differently and with intention to say, it's important because if I get this wrong, I can't repair that in the same way as if I am more judicious about when I release that information.
0: From a practitioner perspective, in addition to being able to regulate ourselves um, in terms of communicating confidence of information, like when, when I'm confident that this is how it works or this is how we're describing it versus when I'm not, in addition to being able to do that, and of trying to avoid initial mistakes. uh, The flip side of that initial mistake problem is that, you know, three weeks later, when you're working on the board, and you make a mistake, and one of your students calls you out on it, that is like the best feeling in the world, right? Because that means that you have created this critical thinking environment where they're not just passively consuming the information. They're actually thinking about what you're presenting. They are using an evaluative mindset. And then they are like the external authority information, authority figure is not infallible. They know that I make mistakes. And so they're able to say, Mr. Woodruff, have you made a mistake here? I thought it worked this way. Uh, when that happens, I get so excited in my classroom. I have a special, I I, I teach ninth through what I call 13th graders, and I have a special set of stickers that I give out when kids correct my mistakes and call me out and to try to encourage that behavior, uh, because that's that evaluative mindset. And the more they can practice it, be it in my classroom or anywhere else, the more they're going to be able to get themselves into that space in the, in the other facets of their life.
1: Well, and that was one of the findings from one of your studies. I know that we haven't talked about the details, the nuts and bolts of your three experiments that you ran, which, which were great and rigorous experiments. One of the key findings that you were really dr- drilling down on, as I understand it, is that um, general protective quality of practicing an evaluative mindset and its applicability outside of the prompt itself to be evaluative, right? The, there was considerable outperformance for your participants in your experiments when they were told at any point in the experiment, have an evaluative mindset. Then they they um, fell prey to recalling misinformation less often than the folks who were not trained at all, which I think speaks to cultivating that classroom mentality of evaluate everything and it can lend you some confidence that they're going to be able to carry that into other parts of their lives and into other places where they're consuming information. I'm telling you about your own study. How am I doing?
2: No, no. I think that, I mean- like he honestly, that was beautiful. I think hearing my study back to me is always wonderful, particularly when someone gets it right. That means that I think I did a good job as a scientist in terms of like science communication and writing. Um, And so thank you for that. Um, So yeah, that was spot on. And I think that that is one of the biggest takeaways. I think people don't always think about accuracy. Basically, people may not be doing it all the time. It is amenable to prompting and it's amenable to prompting in spillover in situations where people can be nudged toward developing this sort of accuracy focus evaluative mindsets and not just apply it to information that you are asking them to evaluate, but also other information that might be associated with non-evaluative goals. Um, so let's say you're going through one example and you're asking people to pay attention to whether something, it, all of the steps as you're working through something are correct. Well, let's say you go through something else later in the day There could potentially be spillover, right? Like it's an empirical question, but based on what we know is that that sort of nudge leads people to maybe develop these goals, these ideas, these framings of how they're processing that information that can lend itself to other situations besides these ideas um, or situations where um, evaluation is explicitly instructed.
1: That was something that I thought about uh, as I was reading your discussion, like your generalized discussion later in the paper. Uh, where that was like, that's sort of the, if I'm understanding correctly, a big goal of of cognitive scientists is these prompts have a power to disrupt some of these harmful effects of misinformation, but we really need some way to understand how people can have that um, disruption without explicit prompting. Like how can we get away from having to tell people be explicit in your prompting, but all, and all of your studies uh, were using participants from a single like re- participant recruitment platform. And so it makes me, it made me wonder about if there were ways to do intentional sampling of different careers or different life experiences to be able to identify what kinds of life pathways might confer some of that like generalized critical reading skill ability, right? Like uh, if we, if you, if we repeated your study with journalists, would they have would they have something closer to an evaluative mindset without any prompting? Um, I, I, I want it to be true. I want that answer to be, yes. I don't know if it is. I want it to be, I don't know. I don't want it to be. Uh, so that was one of the things I was thinking about is if there's some way to connect like these sort of classroom experiences, if there was some way to eventually understand how, you know, what level or what depth or what to what extent do they need to have those experiences to start to see what I would expect to be a generalized protection against some of the misinformation. I don't know.
2: Right, for sure. For sure. I think that that's spot on. I think this this idea of think like a journalist is extremely important. I guess one of the things that I like to emphasize to folks is that, you know, even though people may accept that misinformation is an issue in our day to day, I think that a lot of the focus is put on people believing, sharing, using that false information. But another thing that is really dangerous about it is that it leads people to question and doubt true information as well, whether that's true information that they are initially being provided or if it's true information or accurate information they may hold as their prior understandings as well. Um, so, yes, I think that any sort of ways to uh, encourage people to Uh, engage in this sort of evaluative practice, it not only reduces people's reliance on inaccuracies that they may be presented or see in their day to day that we can't avoid, right? Like there is no world I can imagine where we can just cleanse it of all false or misleading information. I think, you know, going back to your point of how do we encourage evaluation without just asking people to do so, like asking people to think like journalists. One, I think, is the sort of, you know, journalistic training that goes into these sorts of, you know, careers where fact checking is part of the day-to-day, and that is media literacy education, right? So the sort of Um, incorporated in within classrooms, but also maybe as a separate unit all in itself. In order to be evaluative, you have to know know, what is worth evaluating or how to evaluate it, how to look for sources, Um, especially with fake information, false information becoming more and more difficult to spot day to day with these deep fakes videos that are created to look like people are doing and saying things that they never actually did older folks tend to be very susceptible to false information and be a a population that is highly contributing to its spread online. And, you know, one of the reasons could potentially be because they're not identifying this ability for Photoshop or, you know, video altering to be so prevalent and easy nowadays. Um, So I think media literacy education is huge. But I can also talk about other things that we have done in order to, so now that we have identified that people are not always evaluating, like, what can we do about it? And we have um, some creative ideas that we have worked on in the lab that are part of my dissertation that hopefully will be done within the next few days that um, have been pretty successful. But um, the goal is always to try to apply them to real world circumstances from these sorts of manipulations that are rooted in our lab based studies. Um, But yeah, it definitely is an open question and an important question with what's going on in the world right now.
1: So those comments made me think of some things that you wrote about in your paper about uh, what I summarized and I thought it was super important. And so I I double boxed it in my notes because I thought it was maybe the most important finding is I can imagine, I can feel in myself sometimes uh, that I start to slip towards this idea of nihilism around, well, if I just, I just never know things and then it's not a problem. Like there's this statement and I have two degrees in biology and there's a biology statement, but like, if I just don't know, then I can can go play video games, right? In the classroom, especially in like the intermediate and like undergraduate levels of instruction, I think we need to be diligent as teachers about not letting students slip into that nihilistic place of like, here's the data, but it's inconclusive. If I had a nickel for every lab report I've read that said, this is inconclusive because human error, like, because of just like, as like a routine, like it's inconclusive because it's easier to say inconclusive. And then I can just opt out of like applying sense-making, applying my prior knowledge and applying my critical evaluation of the information. And so I think that's a really key step is to... Think about how we can facilitate students engaging in this evaluative mindset without letting them slip into this place of like, well, just don't ever know anything. And then and then it won't be a problem because you laid out in your paper that those are different things.
2: Right. Yes, exactly. I think that right now um, we had a, a paper, David Rapp, my advisor, my PhD advisor, and I, in, I think it was 2018, where we outlined this sort of, model of why we can we can't just disregard fake news or false information based on what it does and how it incurs consequences on our later decisions and actions and those three things, like in progression of um least bad to to the worst, are it, be, it lets us um it be confused when we encounter false information, we demonstrate that sometimes people slow down, right? Like we were like, "Whoa, what's going on?" Like actually, when we say that George Washington was the third president of the United States, people are like, "Um that seems weird. Like actually, that doesn't coincide with what I know to be true. So there's this element of confusion when we encounter false information. Um, And the next is doubt. And the doubt is not just of, you know, doubt in the world, but doubt of ourselves and what we know, right? So it leads us encountering false information in the world. Let's say that George Washington was the third president of the United States leads us to start questioning what we know. You're like, wait, I thought it was the first. Is this what I'm reading? Is what I'm or what I know already to be true? So this doubt of, of prior knowledge, which, you know, leads to these consequences of withholding prior knowledge in the future. And then the third is reliance, and that's reliance on the false information that we are exposed to over our accurate prior knowledge if it exists. So that is like, for example, regurgitating or believing or some sort of demonstration that one changes um, their uh, belief or what they're using to represent this idea that George Washington is the third president of the United States. but going back to your comment previously this the second idea right of doubt of prior knowledge is so so important because you don't we want people to not rely on inaccuracies that they're exposed to but we also want to help people protect their accurate prior knowledge and to remain confident that what they know is correct and can be used and this idea that we sort of grapple with within the paper is that evaluation or evaluative mindsets could lead people to uh, have lower uses of presented inaccuracies or demonstrate less reliance on inaccurate information that we present to them. However, it can also not correct for this impact that it has on people's prior knowledge or what they think is true. So it could be that people are just withholding all answers, right? So like, we're asking you to be evaluative, you're starting to question this information that we're presenting you. You don't use the false information we present you, sure, but how does that impact people's use of their accurate prior knowledge? It could still be that exposure to that false information has enough impact and people are like, okay, yeah, I don't think that Saturn is the largest planet in the solar system, but now I'm not confident enough to be able to report that it's Jupiter, right? Um, Even though that's something that they may have grown up knowing. And so we find thankfully that being in this sort of evaluative mindset doesn't lead to this overall conservativeness in responses. It doesn't lead people to hold back. It increases correct responses that people offer as well as decreases reproductions of inaccuracies. So this is the essential part of like protecting what people know to be true or protecting against the influence of false information.
0: I have one more thing, but I don't know that it's a, I have half a thing uh my half a thing is about our inability to assess the quality of our prior knowledge maybe a dunning kruger type of influence where like i know a lot of molecular biology i know a lot of of ecology so i can trust myself to be able to evaluate news reports rumors posts about climate change and how viruses work because I've studied those things extensively, but most people haven't in the same way that I haven't studied immigration. Most people haven't. So even if they are, have achieved this like internalized evaluative mindset, we're so confident in our assessments. Like, let, me, yeah, let's do that. Let's back up. Is there research? Have you done it? Have you read it about people's ability to assess the quality of their own prior knowledge when making when using an evaluative mindset? do you do we know anything about that? What is the research about that? Is that established explored territory?
2: Right. I think that it hasn't directly been applied to this particular context. But like you hit spot on when you mentioned Dunning-Kruger in general, people have this tendency of overestimating how much they know. Another thing that I I think is worth mentioning is uh, the ideas that we explore in this paper are purposefully general knowledge statements and are not politically opinioned opinions or loaded for around people's ideologies because it becomes a lot more complicated so i picked for my entire dissertation work to be able to have experimental control in a way over people's prior knowledge um so the we use inaccurate declarative statements is what we call them false declarative statements in this paper um, these are facts that are like explicitly true or explicitly false like Chicago is not the capital of Illinois it will never be it is Springfield that is just false right versus the idea that vitamin c cures colds right that is false there is no scientific support right now that that is a direct causal um, statement that is accurate however you can imagine situations where like oh actually you know Having orange juice can make you feel more comfortable and therefore, like, you know, you're eating more and they could help your body recover, like those sorts of ideas where it's based on the preponderance of evidence that something is true or false, which becomes kind of fuzzy. And actually, most people possess the incorrect conception that vitamin c cures cold so when we're asking people to be evaluative of that sort of statement what happens right when people actually already hold the misconception to begin with and so i think that that is an open question and something that uh researchers including myself are are grappling with
0: i think that i'm concerned about this particular concept because in a science classroom we actually science teachers actually sort of need to operate from the assumptions that the kids, some of the kids, all of the kids, every single kid will come in with some uh, misconceptions and misinformation about how these scientific concepts work. And they won't be the same as each other. And some of them will overlap and some of them won't. And so we have to do a lot of work to, um, to put them into an evaluative mindset and be in a comfortable place so that they can use that evaluative mindset to essentially change those concepts themselves. Uh, And that's why I think when I'm reading your paper, I'm reading it from that. Like, well, what about the misconceptions of the individual? What about the lower quality of prior knowledge of the individual? And I think that I got stuck there uh, because that's kind of where I work as a practitioner.
1: so for me, I really like your vitamin C example Because for me, the most salient takeaway is actually like a, a research buttressing of a rhetorical opinion I had. And now it's something that I think, and like I'm ready to go advocate for. And it's really about the importance of avoiding negative examples and false premises as anchoring and engagement exercises, uh, I just don't like it as a rhetorical device to be like, you think vitamin C cures colds in the next 15 minutes. I'm going to tell you why that's false. And like that might get you some clicks on a headline, but you are explicitly working against yourself by opening with that statement. And it does not matter that you explicitly tell them that's a false statement during your presentation. You have already done the damage by just opening with that statement. So like avoiding negative case examples or negative, you know, um, we're going to talk about the fact that bears only eat berries because that's a useful way to talk about energy flow. And that's not a true statement, but we're simplifying it for, the, for purposes right now. You, you've caused a problem by starting with that negative statement. And it doesn't matter that you told them that it's a false statement. I think that it this is the strongest evidence I have seen to date for avoiding negative rhetorical examples because they actually cause a problem. They're not just distasteful tool to me they actually cause a problem because that memory that hey they said something about bears only berries they said something about how vitamin c is cures colds and i don't remember the details and so that i'm just as likely to retrieve that memory as what i actually learned 10 years before and so do not do it like the should is avoid negative examples when at all possible because they cause harm and harm we science does not currently know how to fix
2: no, and nope, and I think that in cases when you can't avoid having people encounter false information, so whether that be practically on social media or in the classrooms, if teachers are leveraging fiction, uh, whether that be in the form of uh, like a movie representation of a historical event or using a fictional novel to discuss a particular concept, to be able to disclose prior to having students engage with that material, some of the stuff in here is wrong. And not just that, but like, actually, like, let's point it out, like, let's like go through it. So It's not, I think that when it's avoidable, you know, try not to disclose false information in any way, shape, or form if you can. But in cases where it's not avoidable, because, you know, authors or directors take liberties with truth in order to make things entertaining, there could be some, you know, value in terms of entertainment of getting students to be able to engage and learn that material, but they should also be encouraged to be skeptical of that material at the same time and explicitly highlight those inaccuracies um, or having that be able to to have them point them out based on prior knowledge that you hopefully have discussed earlier in um, like classroom discussions be like, okay, so like, what about this is actually incorrect based on what we have learned about the truth of the world and have that sort of discussion? Yeah, I think that that is definitely a big takeaway for classrooms.
1: Uh, thank you for joining us. This has been a really satisfying conversation and it's really useful work as we think about how we manage the information we present in our classrooms.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Seriously, it's been wonderful talking to you both, Um, learning more about what you do, more about beer and, you know, hearing back to me what I do is great too um, from a fresh perspective. Uh, I do want to plug that I do have a website. It's my last name, which is Salovich, S-A-L-O-V-I-C-H.com. Make it easy for you guys. Just have to remember one name. You can read more of my research on there. Um, All of the PDFs of my papers are listed, as well as Twitter threads that I have written about my work, uh, which hopefully are uh, a little bit more accessible and friendly to folks that may not want to read, you know, 15 pages dive through figures, so on and so forth, summarized by yours truly. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, my my username is Silovich, which is supposed to be like a pun, both psych and Salovich. Um, but I don't know if that actually worked out and I'm too scared to actually change it. Um, but also I am defending next month. I accepted a research job in industry. Um, I will be a researcher at Meta starting this summer for the Facebook app. Um, I'm on the news team, so I'll be able to continue doing research that hopefully makes the content that people see online, um, more informative and safe. Um, And for any sort of grad student or someone who is right now trying to pivot, I guess, from academia to industry research, I'd be happy to chat about my transition, too, because I know that sometimes it can be a scary and big one. So um, I do want to put myself out there as a resource for folks.
1: Make better mistakes. For our second segment, we read Within the Walls of the Classroom, How Science Teachers' Instruction Can Develop Students' Sociopolitical Consciousness. This was written by Brittany Jones and Jonte Taylor. Published in Science Education in 2022. And as we get started, I want to say thank you to lead author Brittany Jones for providing us a copy of this paper for us to read. This was interesting. I noticed that the topic of this paper overlapped to some extent with some of the applicability of our previous segment and it, on the uh, social media online world. And so that was appealing to me. And also the ability to update some of that like science in society. We did a segment yeah. last season about um, the nature of science in society. And so being able to think some more about what obligations do we have as public school teachers, to be able to work with students and young people to prepare them to participate in society as responsible citizens. And this had a a pretty good overlap with that, I thought.
0: And so, so it resonated with me and I queued it up. I like it. It's consistent. Uh, It's comfortable. It, it highlights the priorities that I think I should have as a science teacher and then it focuses on the ones that are most commonly neglected. This construct of culturally relevant pedagogy, and then with a focus of culturally relevant science teaching, uh, they, they state that culturally relevant science teaching involves academic success in science, cultural competence in science, science and socio political consciousness in science. And then they kind of proceed saying that most teachers already do what they can to promote academic success in science and most teachers already do what they can to promote cultural competence in science however the socio-political consciousness in science is something that isn't as well supported in regular teacher practice so let's discuss it and then they further unpack that to identify that there are sort of three
1: areas three steps three actions that we need to help students take in order to engage and uh, develop their ability in that third tenant. They must engage in critical reflection, critical efficacy, and critical action. And I appreciate that sort of organization.
0: I I broke down for my own translation of their framework to myself, to what is actionable to me so that I can grapple it. The idea that this is about um, making equity issues transparent. Uh, The second piece of this was about grappling with our own as
1: in, as instructors and facilitating students grappling with their intersectionality and intersectionality. They gave my now favorite example of how to think about what intersectionality means. And so they gave, as an example, the experience of somebody buying a house. And they said, if you think about what it is like for a black woman with an advanced educational degree to buy a house, her experience is has the potential to be different, substantially different, fundamentally different than the experience of a white woman with an advanced degree buying a house, which is itself has the potential to be substantially and fundamentally different than the experience of a white man with an advanced degree and cerebral palsy buying a house. And so that sort of foregrounds the role of our identities with regard to disability, with regard to gender, with regard to race, and there are other axes of identity that matter. But what is important to understand As I understand intersectionality, is that it's it's a complex interplay that produces something that is not a linear sum of those identities. And the
0: third, I just keyworded for myself the phrase access to science. And they used they evoked a prior construct about providing mirrors, windows, and doors, which metaphorically mean different ways to access and relate to science practices. OK, so they provided some
1: concrete examples for each of those sort of tenets. And so let's uh, let's unpack some of the examples they gave. The first one was to uh, you said transparent. I think about like an intentional or explicit lens on issues of equity, both globally and
0: locally to empower student voices. And they unpacked that. But uh, the their flagship example teacher, Mrs. Thomas, in her seventh grade general science class uh, used the studying of nutrition and chemical analysis of food in order to plan healthy diets as her uh, playground for uh, discussing equity.
1: And so as they imagined how this example teacher might reapproach that content through a lens that prioritizes socio-political consciousness, they imagined that this teacher would be implementing... Uh, discussions around food deserts and access to nutrition or adequate, fresh and healthy food for different communities, and especially how that is uh, discriminatory in where it's available and to whom it is available and the impacts of those different food availability options for those communities. And so being able to unpack the equity lens around nutrition and nutrition availability does get at the impacts of some of the different nutritional consequences of macromolecule availability and its role in our metabolism. So it is it is nested within the content and the curricular goals and explicitly connects it to this equity discussion around nutrition availability. The, I Actually, what resonated with me was another example that was discussed earlier in that section. Uh, where the authors identified a really common discussion in a lot of introductory biology classes is the discovery of DNA structure that is so often, you know, a foundational discussion moving into, you know molecular genetics type content and the discovery of DNA. And so James Watson's name as one of the people who are credited with the discovery of DNA structure comes up and recontextualizing the work of James Watson, within his body of work and his racist rhetoric and the problematic process by which they discovered that structure by appropriating and neglecting to credit the work of Rosalind Franklin is something that students can consider within that context rather than just celebrating James Watson discovered DNA, done, move on, celebrate him as a celebrity, but Contextualizing that work within the socio political context of where that work and by whom that work was done is a way to have the same content conversation, but have it in a more contextualized way to raise students' awareness of the socio political context within which science has always been done. It's not new, it's always been done in a socio political context. We just have to stop neglecting that context.
0: Being able to present with your kids the holistic participation of humans in science the first time you present it to them allows them opportunities to avoid creating that misconception. Uh, One of the things that was in this paper that was really exciting for me to read was their discussion of, and there was an acronym for it, and I don't remember what it is, D-A-S-T... Draw a scientist test? Yes. And what was exciting about me is that there's someone in my building who does this with his kids in his Gen Bio class every year. And, you know, a large portion of the kids, quote, fall for the trap every time where here's the thing, I need you to draw a scientist, draw them however you'd like. And the majority of students draw a white male chemist. Let's find scientists and celebrate scientists that, whose intersectionality may overlap with some of yours. Let's find scientists and maybe even interact with scientists and read some of the work of scientists and celebrate scientists that challenge uh, this, this, f- the fallacy of this standard account. There was another piece, uh,
1: there was a statement, there was a citation in this section that the authors used from a 2018 meta-analysis. And they looked at how often intersectionality was the focus in peer-reviewed papers around STEM. And in STEM in particular, it is incredible. It is shameful how rare those discussions are happening in STEM right now, in STEM research in particular. Two and a half percent, Of the 2,800 papers they analyzed from the last last 25 years discussed intersectionality in STEM, fewer still in STEM workforce topics. So when they say there is a gap in the research, this is a real gap. STEM and STEM workforce is not talking about this intersectionality topic enough, not nearly enough, less than two and a half percent of the time.
0: So once that intersectionality work has been done, then we get to what I think is the more fun part of this, and that is sort of the celebration of um, humanity and its experiences with science. So when we get to the mirrors, windows, and doors, mirrors is a metaphor, metaphor for providing students opportunities to see people like themselves in science. So once we've done the work to accept intersectionality, now let's find examples of people with similar intersectionality doing science. Uh, because then the implicit story isn't the white male chemist does science. I'm not a white male, so I don't do science. It is these people do science and I am like them so I can do science. So that, that's what that mirror piece is about.
1: So I think uh, to kind of close this out, we can link back to that sort of ongoing narrative that they provided to contextualize this. Because we talked about the original example of uh, Mrs. Thomas, who's uh, reconfiguring her macromolecules unit uh, to connect it to issues of nutritional availability and food deserts. And so, thinking about intersectionality, you could imagine she might she might discuss with the class how she recognizes her personal experience with familial connections, thinking about nutrition. And so, for example, maybe her, her brother is allergic to nuts and her aunt is a is a vegan. And so thinking about how that influences what is salient for her when she thinks about nutrition. She my aunt is a vegan, so I think a lot about protein sources and availability of the essential amino acids. Like, I'm used to thinking about that. That feels comfortable and something like I would think about a lot versus somebody who has different connections to nutrition would have different things that are easily salient or more unfamiliar. And so modeling that sort of reflective process for students and facilitating their own reflections is a piece of how you help them think about an intersectionality and do it contextualized within your content. Know your students.
0: Uh, okay, so how was the beer? Uh, this was way better than last month. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's got a really complex front end as I experienced it. Those are uh, like floral notes. And I don't know if that's barley or what that is, but the front end does a lot more work than the back end as I experienced it. So on first
0: impression, I found that this is not a strong flavor. Uh, it It has a mildly bitter taste. Uh, in the middle, and it has a slightly sweet aftertaste. Uh, and I feel it very clean at the beginning.
1: Yeah.
0: So let's hear what our beer vizier, Aaron Matthew, has said. Uh, he says there it's bready with a light banana taste up front, and the banana gets stronger as it warms.
1: It's a sense of bread as a factor in.
0: Yeah, I did not catch bread. I did not catch. I did not catch bread or grain or yeast. I didn't. The banana I can see, like, retroactively
1: ascribed. I said, like, floral or something, but, like, I think what I would have said if I knew more would have been banana. Thanks for joining us. Closing out another school year. So if you have a break, please enjoy it. I know that this has been, um, uh, I'm going to say an exceptional school year and your work is important and you have earned your rest if you have it coming. We're going
0: to enter the summer phase. Where we're just a little more relaxed and lackadaisical. Yeah, you got it. So we'll see you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.